Well, it is the highest grossing, hand-drawn, animated film of all time. It's won multiple Academy Awards, a Golden Globe, and today is still a beloved kids' classic. If you're not sure exactly what I'm talking about, I'll give you one more hint. It has inspired our fun little ceremony that Pastor Clint does when a new baby is born in the church, where he holds the baby up and goes across. Yes, I'm talking about The Lion King. The Lion King tells the story of Simba. Simba's father, Mufasa, is the king of the pride lands in Africa. And Mufasa understands the responsibilities of the king. And he teaches Simba, as long as the king is faithful to his responsibilities, the circle of life will continue, and all animals in the pride lands will thrive. But Mufasa's brother, Scar, covets the throne. So he kills Mufasa forces Simba into exile and neglects all of his duties as the new king. As a result, the kingdom experiences drought, food becomes scarce, and the pride lands become a place of ruin. And everyone there suffers. And the film is all about Simba coming to grips with who he is as the one who should be king. And spoiler alert, he eventually returns, he defeats Scar, and he takes the throne. And he rules as the good king in the land, and the circle of life is restored. Now, I am almost positive that no one making the movie Lion King thought about the book of Jeremiah. But the story revolves around a theme that is found throughout the book of Jeremiah, and it is found especially in our text this evening. When the kings and the leaders fail, everything falls apart. Exile comes, and for everything to be set right, you need the one true king on his throne in the land. And with that in mind, turn with me to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. Thus far, Jeremiah's prophecies have primarily focused on the sins of the people of Judah. And beginning in Jeremiah chapter 21, he pivots. The Lord turns his attention away from the people generally to a specific group in the nation that was failing miserably, the leaders. So Jeremiah 21 to 23 is this unit in the book where God gives scathing indictments on the leaders of Judah, especially the kings and the prophets of the nation. Jeremiah 22, for example, introduces prophecies of judgment against the final four kings of Judah. And near the end of Jeremiah 22, Jeremiah prophesies against a king we need to know about this evening named Coniah. You don't need to remember his name, you just need to know that Coniah is another name for Jehoiakim, and he at one point is reigning on the throne. Now here's the thing, if you forget his name and everything else, just remember this. Here's Bible trivia. If you trace Jehoiakim's genealogy back far enough, he is from the line of what really important king? David. He is from the line of David, and he sat on David's throne. So look with me at the end of Jeremiah 22. Look at verse 28. Jeremiah 22, beginning in verse 28. Is this man, Coniah or Jehoiakim, a despised, shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his seed been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known. Oh, land, 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 hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh, write this man down childless, 
a man who will not succeed in his days. For no, one, no man of his seed will succeed sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. So this searing condemnation of the kings of Judah ends with a shocking declaration of judgment from God. He will cut off the family of Jehoiakim from the throne. Historically speaking, Jehoiakim will have sons, but none of them will reign on David's throne. Why is that such a big deal? Well, remember God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7.16. 2 Samuel 7.16, God promises David in your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. God promised in no uncertain terms he would establish David's throne forever. And yet here, God says to David's offspring, who is sitting on David's throne, none of your seed will succeed and sit on the throne of David. So put yourself in this scene. You're living during the days of Jeremiah's ministry. You've studied and you know your Old Testament and you hear Jeremiah give this prophecy that the family of David is cut off from the throne. What goes through your mind? What? How can this be? Has God abandoned his promise? I mean, is he reneging? Is he going back on his commitment to David? So Jeremiah 22.30 reads like an obituary for the throne of David. So here's the question. How will God keep his promise to raise up a king who will reign forever from David's line and keep this promise in light of the judgment in Jeremiah? Here's the answer. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23 answers that question. The promises in this text will span far beyond Judah, far beyond Jeremiah's life or the exile. Contained in these verses are glorious promises that impact not only the, not only the nation of Judah, but all nations, including you and me. So look in your Bible at Jeremiah 23, beginning in verse 1. God's perfect word reads, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares Yahweh. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are shepherding my flock, you have scattered my flock and banished them and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares Yahweh. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the land where I have banished them and cause them to return to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will shepherd them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be left unattended, declares Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch." And he will reign as king and prosper and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when they will no longer say, as Yahweh lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as Yahweh lives, who brought up and brought back the seed of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the lands where I had banished them, then they will live on their own soil. From this text in Jeremiah 23, we will see three prophecies. 
three prophecies God gives through Jeremiah so you will believe his promises and trust in the promised Messiah. Our three prophecies are first, a rescued remnant, second, a righteous ruler, and third, a remarkable regathering. So we begin first with a rescued remnant in verses 1 through 4. Verse 1 begins, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. So the first word in verse 1, woe, tells us we're dealing with judgment. God is speaking judgment against a specific group in Judah. And we need to ask ourselves, who are the shepherds? Who are the sheep? And what is the pasture? Well, the shepherds are the leaders of the, of the nation of Judah. This included not only the kings who he condemned in Jeremiah 22, but also the prophets and the priests. Look at Jeremiah 23 verse 11. Jeremiah 23:11, God says, "For both prophet and priest are polluted. Even in my house I have found their evil," declares Yahweh. The shepherds are those put in authority by God to politically and spiritually lead the nation. So in the same way a shepherd should guard and protect his flock, the leaders of Judah should have guarded and protected the people. They should have obeyed God. They should have been godly examples to those under their care. Yet they failed miserably. They didn't protect the flock. They don't care for the flock. They don't guard the flock from foreign threats. And in so doing, they are bringing harm to the people of the nation. So if the shepherds are the leaders of Judah, then who are the sheep? The people of Judah. It's the Jewish people. And just follow the logic one more step. If the sheep are the Jewish people, the people of Judah, then what is the pasture? Well, a pasture is a place where the sheep live. The pasture, in context, is the land of Judah. Because of their rebellion against the Lord and their poor leadership, the shepherds are destroying and scattering God's people. In the middle of verse 2, God rebukes them with these words. You have scattered my flock and banished them and have not attended to them. In their ungodliness, the leaders are marching Judah closer and closer to banishment, to exile in Babylon. So God speaks sobering words to these rebellious shepherds near the end of verse 2. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares Yahweh. He says, you have not attended to them, but I am about to attend to you. You know how sometimes you're in a room during a pretty tense conversation, and somebody makes a comment, and you can just tell with that comment, the tension in the room just ramps up to 11. It's like this comment is made, and it sucks the air out of the room, and you're just, like, you feel the tension in your body. That's that phrase. That's God completely flipping the script. It's borderline a threat to the people. He's saying, you haven't been watching out for my people, but you better believe I've been watching you. And he's not watching them in this verse in a good way. He's saying, you have not taken care of them, so I will take care of you. I will judge you for your sin. The people suffer because of the ungodly leaders. And there is a timeless principle here that still applies today. As the leaders go, so go the people. 
The, un- the godliness or lack thereof of, of the leaders bleeds down and affects the people under their care. And just think about the church. Paul speaks to elders or to pastors in Acts 20, verse 28, and he says this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So in the church, what happens when those God has given to shepherd his people Leaders in the church or pastors neglect what God commands them to do. They don't study to show themselves approved. They don't preach the word faithfully. They neglect the flock that God has graciously placed under their care. Perhaps they are unqualified to begin with. And this is not only a sin against God, but leads to spiritually malnourished churches and harms believers. A couple weeks ago, we had the Super Bowl. And I saw a clip that started kind of rotating around some of the things I watch online. And it was a clip of an evangelical megachurch. I won't say the name or where. But they decided to do a Super Bowl-themed service. And so picture, you've got um, the, the ground on the stage. It looks like a field. Everyone on stage is wearing uniforms or jerseys for the teams in the Super Bowl. And it's this huge event. You can, you can tell from the video there are thousands of people at this church service. And you know how in football you have a field goal and somebody holds the ball with their finger and then it's kicked? In the middle of the service, they had pastors and leaders in the church line up on the stage, hold a Bible with their finger, and kick it off the stage. And people thought it was a riot. That's what happens when the people God has put over the church neglect what he's called them to do. And praise God that here we have biblically qualified leaders who shepherd the flock according to his word. And just a disclaimer here, in case you think you have to say that, you're a pastor, I've only been here a couple years. This church is incredibly blessed. And the leaders and the elders that God has brought here, but unfortunately, that's not normal. That's not most churches in America. Woe to pastors and church leaders who reject the word of the living God and instead go their own way. And this principle applies to more than leadership in the church. So just broaden the the picture a little bit and just think about leadership in general. In your life, are you a small group or a ministry leader? Do you maybe in your business have employees that work for you? Are you a parent leading your kids? Maybe you lead a club at school. Is there any situation in your life where you lead others directly or by example? One way you lead and bless others around you is by being godly in your life, by being an example of godliness and righteousness to those around you. Jeremiah 23, 1 and 2 reminds us to watch our lives and our doctrine closely so we would be a blessing and godly example to those under our care or to those around us. But in Judah, due to the ungodliness of the leaders, who they've, the, the leaders have rejected the nation, they have not led the nation, and so ruin will come. God, in the midst of all of this, verse 3 tells us, will remain faithful. Look at verse 3. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the lands where I have banished them and cause them to return to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. A remnant in the Old Testament is a small group that remains, usually after God's judgment has been poured out. So for example, God floods the entire earth in the global flood, but he spares a remnant in Noah and his family. It's the same idea here. The people will be scattered and banished from the land, 
but even then, God will have a remnant. God promises to preserve a group of Jewish people that will survive, be forced into exile, and ultimately return back to the land. And notice that God speaks about this remnant as his flock. His flock. Aren't you grateful that when leaders fail, God is still the good shepherd? That God is the shepherd of his flock. In this context, judgment is coming. The leaders are awful shepherds, but the Lord is the greater shepherd. The Lord is the better shepherd. It reminds us of Psalm 23, verse 1. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. They are still his people, and he will keep all his promises to his flock. So God says he will gather them in the middle of verse 3 out of all the lands where I have banished them. And God promises that after they are driven out, he will cause them to return to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. So in his judgment... God will scatter, and in his grace, he will gather them again and cause the nation to prosper. Now, historically speaking, Babylon began attacking Jerusalem. I'm just going to give you a couple quick dates. They began attacking Jerusalem in 605 B.C., and then Jerusalem is finally destroyed in 586 B.C. And in between, there's a bunch of people being forced out of Judah into exile. And then later on, they return to the land in 538 B.C., which you can read about in the book of Ezra if you want to. But, but the dates aren't the main point. The main point is they are physically forced out of the land and they are physically brought back. But God promises more than simply to bring them back. Look at verse 4. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will shepherd them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be left unattended, declares Yahweh. Notice the emphasis on God's actions. In verse 3, I myself will gather. I have banished them. Verse 4, I will also raise up shepherds over them. They failed. But God will not allow his plans, whatever the railroad is that he has laid, going back to the sermon this morning, God will not allow that to be derailed. He is faithful, and his faithfulness will outshine their faithlessness. So after they return to the land, God promises to raise up new shepherds over them, better shepherds, leaders who will do what the earlier shepherds failed to do. God promises to raise up leaders who will actually care for the people, and allow them to thrive. And in a limited sense, this happened. As the people came out of exile, God raised up men like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, who spiritually and politically led the people as they came back into the land. A remnant was indeed rescued. But, look at the text carefully. Was this all fulfilled? Have all the details of verse 4 come to pass? Notice at the end of verse 4, God promises that when this is filled, they, the people of Judah, will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be left unattended. When this prophecy is fulfilled, the people will no longer need to be afraid of threats around them. Since the people returned from Babylon, were they ever afraid of their enemies around them? 
all the time. Nehemiah 4 even mentions that while they're doing the work and rebuilding, some of them have weapons because of the constant threats. And ask yourself, has the land of Israel gone any significant amount of time since then where they were free of all fear or threat? It's not even close. In case in point, just turn on the news. It's there all the time. The nation never experienced ongoing peace in the way described in verse 4. The return after exile in Babylon was a partial fulfillment. But when we look at this carefully, we're left longing. We're left waiting. We're left hoping for more. Not for a limited fulfillment, but for a complete fulfillment to all of these words. And that will only happen through the work of one true king. And that brings us to our second heading, a righteous ruler. A righteous ruler. Verse 5 begins, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh. And with those words, Jeremiah pivots, and he launches into one of the clearest prophecies of the Messiah within the book's pages. Verse 5 says of this Messiah, says, When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Now, as we read those words, remember, what is the state of the Davidic throne in Jeremiah 22:30? Terrible, bad, cut off, not good. It seems no one can succeed to rule rightly over Judah from David's throne. And into this bleak scene comes a branch. So picture a stump that's cut all the way down to the ground. The tree doesn't seem to be growing, and it sits idle, and over time you have debris and leaves that cover it. Moss begins to grow over it. It's like a neglected yard. It just becomes overgrown, and, and the tree is buried, and it's seemingly forgotten. That's David's line. You're staring at the debris. Picture the scene in your mind. You're staring at this debris, and suddenly something begins to grow. One single branch, almost like a twig, sprouts up from the stump. And against all odds, it breaks through. And it grows. And it thrives. That's the image used here in Jeremiah 23, 5. The Messiah is described as a branch elsewhere in the Old Testament. So Isaiah 11, verse 1 says this of the Messiah, Isaiah 11.1, 1, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Jesse is the father of David. So again, the Messiah is connected to the family of David. So why do the authors of the New Testament go out of their way to make clear Jesus is from the line of David? This is literally how the New Testament begins. Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We see something similar in Luke 1, 32 and 33. Luke 1, beginning in verse 32, says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. Jesus is the Davidic branch. He is the king who will reign and whose kingdom will have no end. And can we pause here just for a moment to admire our God? Jeremiah gives this prophecy 
in 597 BC. 597. That is nearly 600 years before the branch is born. 600 years later, the prophecy begins to be fulfilled. The Lord Jesus Christ is born into the exact family, under the exact circumstances the prophets foretold. And today, we have the incredible privilege of opening our Bibles and standing on the edge of this vast landscape of prophecy about the Messiah and just gazing and marveling. It's like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, just looking out, seeing from our perspective, taking it all in what God said and what God has done. Verse 5 then emphasizes the foundation of his throne, and it will be righteousness. This king will be a righteous branch. He will be righteous in his behavior, righteous in his reign, and contrast this with the rulers of Judah at the time. Unlike Jehoiakim, unlike Zedekiah, unlike all the corrupt and godless rulers and leaders that led Judah to its destruction, this one from the line of David will be righteous. The next line in verse 5 says, and he will reign as king and prosper and do justice and righteousness in the land. As king, he will prosper. Your translation may have there that he will deal wisely. The word means he will have success. It means that the Messiah, the righteous branch, will accomplish all he sets out to do. The Messiah will accomplish his will. He will succeed and do justice and righteousness. This righteous branch who does justice is the one the book has been longing for. Let me read for you earlier in the book. Listen to Jeremiah 5, verse 1. It's a challenge to Jerusalem. Jeremiah 5, verse 1 says this. Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and see now and know and seek in her open squares if you can find a man. If there is one who does justice... One who seeks faithfulness, then I will pardon her. Here is the longing of Jeremiah 5 and the whole book. Spread out and start looking. Is there anyone righteous? Search every street, every alley, every house. Can you find a single person who is just? A single person who is faithful? A single man whose righteousness is so perfect an entire people can be pardoned because of him. There is only one. And here he is in Jeremiah 23, the righteous branch. Just imagine it, a king who is perfectly just, perfectly fair, just in all his judgments and ways. Don't you long for judges who are just? For senators and governors and presidents, and kings who will practice righteousness. There is a king who will reign in justice and righteousness over his creation forevermore. And notice, according to the end of verse 5, where specifically he will reign. This little phrase at the end is important. In the land. In the immediate context, what is the land? It's the land of Judah. It's on earth. It's the same land the people were forced out of at the end of verse 
three. So if you remember, when Jesus comes on the scene, a lot of people around him are expecting him to conquer. They're expecting him to establish justice in Jerusalem, to throw off the shackles of Rome, to make everything right politically on earth, to reign as king. And that expectation was not wrong. They just had their timing off. The king will not only reign in heaven, but from the Davidic throne on earth, in the land. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ currently rules and reigns over all things from the right hand of the Father. He spiritually reigns even now in the hearts and lives of his people and over all the earth. Amen. 10,000 times over, amen. But the reign here is no mere spiritual kingdom. The day will come when he returns in glory and he reigns on his throne from the land of Judah over all the earth. This prophecy reminds us the world belongs to Christ and he will return and he will reclaim it and he will make all things new. Jeremiah 23 verse 6 then continues to describe what this Messiah will accomplish. In his days... Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. The Messiah will bring about promises to the people and nation of Israel. In his days, Judah will be saved. That is, he will bring about their salvation. They will be rescued. They will be delivered. The next line in verse 6 says, and Israel will dwell securely. The words dwell securely emphasize social and political security. And remember the context. When this prophecy is given, the nation is anything but secure. Israel has been forced into exile. The northern kingdom, Israel, is forced into exile already. Judah, the southern kingdom, is right on the brink of exile. And against that bleak backdrop shines this glorious promise of the Messiah. The work of the Messiah will bring about spiritual and physical benefits to Judah and Israel. A day is coming when the Messiah will cause Judah and Israel together to be secure from her enemies, to be saved by Yahweh, and to dwell in peace in the land. And when this happens, look at the end of verse 6, which says, when this happens, and they will say, and this is the name by which he will be called, Yahweh, our righteousness. Who is this righteous branch? He's no mere man. This branch is the Lord Jesus Christ. The promised Messiah is Yahweh. This is God himself. The Messiah will not only conduct himself with perfect righteousness and reign in righteousness, but he will bring about the righteousness of his people. Yahweh, our righteousness. He alone can do this. He alone can make you righteous. Politicians cannot save you. Pastors cannot save you. Your works cannot save you. Only Yahweh can save and deliver you and make you righteous. When I was in seminary, my niece, who was around Riley's age, she was probably around five or six, somewhere in there. So my niece made a profession of faith in Christ. And I hear about this, and I'm the seminary student I'm skeptical. I don't really buy it. And so she was really excited about it, and she wanted to call me. 
So she calls me and she says, Uncle Mai. That's what my nieces and nephews call me, Uncle Mai. I have no idea why, but that's what they call me. So she says, Uncle Mai, Uncle Mai, I've trusted in Jesus and God has saved me and I'm a Christian. And I'm the skeptical seminary student. And I get this idea. I basically decide I'm going to try to trick her. So here's what I do. I don't know if this is being a good uncle or not, but here's what I do. I said, really? You've become a Christian. That's great. So you've realized Jesus died on the cross for your sin, and now you need to do good things, and then if you do those good things, God will save you. And there is this, like, three to five second pause, just dead air on the phone, and she says, Uncle Mai, works can't save you. Only Jesus saves you and makes you a Christian. And I was like, she's a Christian. Okay, moving on. That's the gospel from the mouth of babes. That is the cry at the end of verse 6. Yahweh, our righteousness, nothing else. So can you call him that today? Do you confess that he is Yahweh, our, my righteousness? To confess this is to say that he is Lord to say that he is Yahweh, the creator. It is to confess your own righteousness is as filthy rags before him. It is to throw yourself exclusively, completely, and solely on the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to depend on him by faith alone. And when Yahweh is our righteousness, then we are enabled by his spirit to live righteous lives for his glory. What this Messiah will accomplish is far more than Jeremiah's audience could have imagined. And that brings us to our final heading, a remarkable regathering. A remarkable regathering. So in verses 7 and 8, God compares the future restoration of Israel to a past key event in Israel's history, the exodus from Egypt. Notice the same phrase is found at the beginning of verse 7 that we saw in verse 5. Verse 7 begins, therefore, behold, the days are coming. So the regathering in verses 7 and 8 is connected to the work of the Messiah in verses 5 and 6. The Messiah is the one that brings this about. This is part of his Work And verse 7 declares, therefore behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when they will no longer say, as Yahweh lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. Pause there. Remember, God bringing his people out of Egypt was a major event in the nation's history. It was a historical event that they remembered, that they celebrated. And just think about what the Exodus was miracles and judgment throughout the land of Egypt, signs and wonders, the armies of one of the greatest and most powerful nations on earth at the time in pursuit of the people of Israel, the Lord himself parting the sea into walls of water so his people can go by, and then God himself causing those same walls of water to crush down and wash away the chariots and armies of the Egyptians. This was the greatest most spectacular, miraculous rescue the world had ever seen. But the day will come, God says, when even the exodus will be eclipsed by a far greater event, a far greater demonstration of God's faithfulness to Israel. 
Verse 8 describes this greater exodus, a greater regathering. Instead of saying, look what Yahweh did in the exodus, people will say, but as Yahweh lives, who brought up and brought back the seed of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the lands where I had banished them, then they will live on their own soil. So what is this greater exodus? What event is this talking about? Well, some suggest that this greater exodus has already happened. That verses 7 and 8 predicted Israel's return to the land from Babylon, and therefore this has been fulfilled. But again, if we look at the details of the text, that doesn't really work. This prophecy makes abundantly clear the restoration of Israel is like the one that happened in Egypt, only exponentially greater, better. So when the people returned from the exile in Babylon, was it a glorious return? Did it make the exodus out of Egypt pale in comparison? Well, let me just give you some numbers. In the book of Numbers, Numbers 146, it tells us the, the number of Israelite men who were brought out of Egypt into the wilderness. So God would use the men as a representation of the nation. Numbers 146 tells us that number of, of men brought out of the exodus in Egypt is 603,550. 603,550. Ezra 2, verse 64, records the number of Jewish men that returned after the exile into Babylon. So in Ezra 2, 64, we're told the number of men that returned from Babylon. Here's the number. 42,360. Compare those numbers. Brought out of the exodus in Egypt, about 600,000. Brought back after exile in Babylon, less than 43,000. Yes, they returned, but it was more with a whimper than a bang. So, so the prophecy clearly looks past the return from exile in Babylon to a regathering far greater. And notice, who is God restoring or bringing back to the land in the middle of verse 8? the seed of the household of Israel, who are scattered not only to the north, but all the lands. So not just Assyria, not just Babylon. This is far greater in scope. Jeremiah 7, 7 makes a similar promise as far as them coming back. I'm getting ahead of myself. Come back to verse 8. Notice where it says God will bring the people of Israel back to at the end of verse 8. This is key. Then they will live on their own soil. He will bring them back to their own soil. This is not merely a spiritual gathering. It is physical. When this happens, the people of Israel will be regathered and dwell securely and live on their own soil, the land. And now we come to Jeremiah 7, verse 7. Jeremiah 7, 7 makes the exact same promise. It says, Then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers, forever and ever. So that's prophecy, some historical detail. Let's bring it all together. The Messiah will come. And as a result of the Messiah's work, the people of Israel and Judah will return to the land, recognize the Messiah as Yahweh our righteousness, and dwell securely on their own soil. And this restoration to the land will far surpass the past miraculous exodus from Egypt. And you might be saying to yourself, but wait a minute, the Messiah has come. 
we know who the branch is. And this whole salvation and physical restoration of Israel thing hasn't really happened. Right. Exactly. So what does that tell us? One day it will. God will keep his promises. And this helps us think about the nation of Israel today and to process even what we hear on the news. Israel continues to dwell in anything but security. Justice and righteousness do not reign in the land. Did you know that a few years ago, American Airlines conducted a survey to see what is the best gay city to travel to for their customers? Do you know what won American Airlines survey of the best gay city to travel to? Tel Aviv. Sadly, this is a nation that has rejected its Messiah and continues to do so today. The people may be in the land, but they refuse to turn to the Messiah. And what is the only hope for the people of Israel? It's the only hope for you as well. There is no hope for Israel or anyone else apart from the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their solution to be right with God is the exact same as ours. And glory to God through the work of the Messiah, millions and millions of people, Jews and Gentiles, have been rescued from their sins. And because our God is faithful, one day all the details and prophecies of Jeremiah 23, 1 through 8, will come to pass. Not partially. Not in a kind of limited way. Completely. When they will be regathered to the land and return to the Lord. This is the expectation of the Old Testament. Zechariah 12, verse 10, speaks of this day, and it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me. They will look on the Messiah, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him, as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And in the New Testament... Paul says of the people of Israel in Romans 11, verse 23, Romans eleven twenty three 23 says, And they also, Israel, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And he continues in Romans eleven twenty five: A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And Paul tells us after the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, what will happen? And so, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. The gifts and callings of our God are irrevocable. So here is a simple application. Believe God. Believe what God says. Believe all his promises to you in the present and the future. Not one will fail. Because our God is a promise-keeping God, what he said in the past, he will do. Whatever promises he gives to his people, including you, he will keep. He is the good shepherd to his people. He will gather all those who are his, not leave them scattered. He will care for his sheep, not abuse them. He does not overlook, neglect, or lose a single one that is his. Even now he rules over his people with wisdom, and he will succeed. No force in heaven or on earth can thwart his reign, and he will come again and fulfill all his promises. Everything will be set right, and the one true king, the righteous branch, 
will reign on his throne. Pray with me. Father, this is an astounding text with prophecy and history and the Messiah all laced together. And we thank you that we can study it and that we can see a faithful God, a God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love to a thousand generations, a God who not merely declares judgment because of sin, but becomes the righteous branch and comes and bears our sin upon himself, and that through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can declare even today, even now, Yahweh, you and you alone are our righteousness. We praise you that you will keep all the promises you make in your word, that you will keep all the promises you make to your church, and that you will make all the promises that you give to Judah and to Israel, and we give you glory as the only one who can do it. And it's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.